Here are some fun facts about George Washington. One, George Washington didn't have a middle name. Two, George Washington's birthday was not February twenty second, seventeen thirty two. Wait, wait, Asha, why are you listing facts about George Washington? I have to make a list of fun facts about myself for school. Okay. Since President's Day just went by, I have to read fun facts about American presidents like Lincoln and Washington. Three, George Washington loved pets and owned rabbits. And he owned people too, lots of them. Daddy. What? Let's rewind for a minute. It had been a long day. That morning, I dropped my daughters off at school and headed to WOSU Studios to participate in a Black History Month discussion on All Sides with Ann Fisher, a public affairs talk show that airs on one of Central Ohio's NPR stations. That afternoon was filled with faculty meetings, back to back to back, and that evening. I delivered the keynote address at Ohio State's 2019 United Black World Month celebration, pinch hitting for CNN political commentator and fellow Morehouse man Bakari Sellers, who had to cancel at the last minute because of bad weather. When the day was done and I was driving home, I reflected on all that had transpired. The radio program had been engaging, and Fisher always asks great questions. The faculty meetings were actually productive, or at least as productive as faculty meetings can be, and the keynote address was favorably received. The students were fired up and ready to go, and that night I swear, when I saw the police, they rolled right past me. The day was a good day, but as I neared my home and the adrenaline from being on the move began to wear off, all I could think about was getting some sleep. When I entered my house, I beat a path straight for the bedroom. I heard my kids say something and my wife Rashida say something else, but I was determined to lay down, even if only for a few minutes. So I mumbled something in return and kept right on moving. My grand plan was to rest my eyes for a hot second, then get up and do some work around the house and maybe a little bit of work for school before turning in for good. But if sleep took me. I wasn't gonna fight it. Dishes and laundry would have to wait, and so would emails. I plopped down on my bed, relieved to finally be off of my feet. But no sooner had my head hit the pillow than my eight-year-old daughter Asha, who was in the third grade at the time, burst into the room. Daddy, you have to help me with my homework. What? You have to help me with my homework. I heard what you said the first time. I just don't know why you said it. Go ask your mom. She told me to ask you. What? She told me. I heard what you said. Still laying down, I shut my eyes, massaged my temples, and surrendered to the inevitable. Fine. What's your homework? I have to come up with seven fun facts about myself. Jeez, that's the assignment I thought to myself, and your mom couldn't help you with that. But before I could give voice to my incredulity. Asha explained that since President's Day had just passed, she first had to read a set of fun facts about American presidents, and that got my attention. Which presidents? Well, there's Abraham Lincoln, 
And George Washington, too. I opened my eyes. George Washington, huh? I was all in now. Asha looked at me suspiciously as I sat up. Okay, let's start with Washington. George Washington loved pets and owned rabbits. And he owned people, too. Daddy! What? Asha was giving me the side eye. George Washington had only one tooth when he became president. And he took teeth from the people he enslaved to create a set for himself. Daddy, stop! No, you stop. We stared at each other in silence, neither willing to yield. But soon, she continued with fun facts numbers three through seven, and I continued with my historical addendums. Asha and I eventually completed the assignment, and I eventually got some sleep. But the idea that so-called fun facts about early American presidents is how our children are introduced to enslavers troubled me then and troubles me now. Because when students are finally taught about slavery, which in most places doesn't really take place until the eighth grade, they have already been conditioned to believe that those who held others in bondage were good people, the kind of people who owned pets and bunny rabbits, no less. The fun facts approach to teaching slavery predisposes students to accept as true the lie that slavery was a benign, if not a benevolent, system. But if fun facts about enslavers isn't the right way to introduce slavery to young learners, then what should we be doing? And how should we be introducing slavery to children? Well, let's find out. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, and this is Teaching Hard History, American Slavery, a special series from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This podcast provides a detailed look at how to teach important aspects of the history of American slavery. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. In our second season, we are expanding our focus to better support elementary school educators, to spend more time with teachers who are doing this work in the classroom, and to understand the often hidden history of the enslavement of indigenous people in what is currently the United States. Talking with students about slavery can be emotional and complex. This podcast is a resource for navigating those challenges, so teachers and students can develop a deeper understanding of the history and legacy of American slavery. Children's books are often the primary way that young students are exposed to the history of American slavery. Young people can and need to understand this country's founding injustices. But many books about slavery are harmful. Some sugarcoat oppression with pictures depicting so-called happy slaves. Others only talk about successful escape stories, as if slavery had a happy ending. And then there's the near total omission of the enslavement of indigenous people. This means that teachers and librarians need to consider the ways that the books they choose portray African-Americans and indigenous people, as well as their cultures and the effects of enslavement. In this episode, we're going to examine what teachers and families should consider 
when selecting children's books about slavery and teaching about marginalized identities. I had the chance to talk with Professor Ebony Elizabeth Thomas at the second annual Teaching Black History Education Conference at the University of Missouri-Columbia, where she was giving a talk about teaching slavery through children's literature. In our conversation, she offered advice for helping teachers navigate and build around the limitations of books for young readers. She also explains why it's so important to create a balance of narratives when selecting books about marginalized and underrepresented communities. I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy. I'm really excited to welcome to this episode of Teaching Hard History of American Slavery, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, and we're actually in studio together in Missouri. So this is really fantastic. Ebony, I'm so glad that you are with us and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You look at, in your work and in your research, depictions of slavery in children's literature. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in that subject, both professionally as well as personally? I first got interested in thinking about the presence of Black children in kids' books. As a kid myself, searching for any traces of myself, amid the pages of everything I was reading. I was reading Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary, and I noticed quite quickly that Black children only showed up in some genres. We showed up lots in historical books, books about slavery or civil rights. Of course, there were the exceptions that proved the rule. So Virginia Hamilton's mystery stories, The House of Dyes Drear, Walter Dean Myers, The Legend of Tariq. And I think about Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters, even as a picture book from my childhood. So there were exceptions to that rule. But most of the time when a black child showed up in a children's book, K-12, the book was trying to teach me something. I longed for magical escape. I longed for adventure. I longed to be taken out of 1980s Detroit. So I have to say it's a lifelong interest that only became more acute when I started teaching kids in Detroit. So you didn't go directly from graduate school to the ivory tower. I mean, you had a, (laughs) you spent some time in the classroom back in your hometown of Detroit teaching what grade level? I began by teaching fifth grade for two years, and then I taught high school English and creative writing for five years in Detroit and Ann Arbor. And I noticed that even with the books that we did have on the shelf, the books that I was presented with as a child in the 80s and early 90s, and that I had for my students in the early 2000s, There were very limited scopes of what a black child character could do in those books. Enslaved children or children who are something less than free haunt all of English language children's literature because of the inception of the genre. I've been joking with audiences that there are only five kinds of black characters and or black story people in books for children and teens. The first is the enslaved character. The second is the character who is fighting against Jim Crow or dealing with segregation during the Nader period of American history. The third is the character fighting for civil rights during the mid-20th century. The fourth is a character who's trying to survive life in the ghetto 
If it's a boy, he's usually wrestling with whether to join a gang or not. And then there's the black best friend in suburbia. So how does the enslaved character fit into that? Among all those characters, I think the enslaved character is the foundational trope for how black children exist in our literate imaginations. Because when children's literature itself as a genre first arose during the late Enlightenment and then really in the 19th century with the rise of this literate middle class with this idea of Victorian motherhood, These were mothers who could read books to their children. Or if you were exceptionally wealthy, you could afford a nanny or a governess who could read these tales to your young charges. This is a very small set of women, even among white English women, but they became idealized. And I find that during that period, enslavement and the question of black freedom was foremost on everyone's mind. So during the same period that we began getting the first children's books in the late 18th and early 19th century, this was the question around the British Empire. Slavery was the question in first the North American colonies and then the fledgling United States. And so really the enslaved child of African descent, the enslaved black child haunts, to borrow a term from Toni Morrison, haunts the whole of U.S. and U.K. children's literature. Of course, there are exceptions to that rule, but those exceptions are notable because of their very exceptionality. You mentioned that there are exceptions. Yes. But there's also a running theme of exceptionalism in children's literature, really, but all literature when it comes to the African-American experience. How does that color the imagination of children about what slavery was and what was possible or not possible in it? The problem with slavery is that it does not fit very neatly within either children's literature as a genre or as a category. There are many things about enslavement that are simply and fundamentally not representable within what we think about as children's books. And then it also doesn't fit the American exceptionalist meta-narrative at all that we are trying to inculcate in children from their very earliest years. And I think the result is that it sits uneasily within the body of children's literature that we have, especially post-civil rights movement. We're not really sure what to do with it. It's something that kids ought to know about. And very often, a picture book is how we introduce enslavement to children, but we don't do it very well. And because of this discomfort, this uneasiness with what to do with slavery, what do we wind up doing in the picture books themselves? I think a number of things end up happening because in a picture book, you only have 32 pages, generally very limited text, and the book itself is meant to be chaperoned by an adult reader. So someone is generally at first reading alongside the child. So one of the challenges of slotting slavery within that format is that so much of the information being conveyed in the picture book is done through pictures. So many of the harsh realities of enslavement 
simply are not seen as appropriate for any child between the ages of four and eight. You can't depict most of it. Of course, there are some great picture books about enslavement that depict the joy of it. So there is a focus on holidays, heroes, crafts, and it means that the first information that young people get about enslavement tends to be incoherent without a lot of adult intervention around those books. What I believe that authors and illustrators have been doing since the close of the civil rights movement and the rise of multicultural education and publishing is they have nobly tried to rehabilitate the image of the black child, which before the civil rights movement had just been caricaturized, erased, marginalized, or set aside as a helper throughout most of the history of children's literature. There just weren't very many agentive black children in those books. And so for the first 30 or 40 years after the civil rights movement, you're just doing repair. And so there has been this tendency to focus on heroes like set up Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman to be a hero that is equal to the founders. So we can put Harriet Tubman alongside Abraham Lincoln. And some of this is because in the United States, we really love our heroes. So you think about, I love the way you framed it as putting it into not just historical context, but into the context of the times in which we are living, coming out of the civil rights era, and the need to do this repair because so much psychic damage had been done. And so in a very well-meaning, intentional, purposeful, and needed and necessary way, you're going to have these authors who are consciously saying, listen, we need to show the heroism and the humanity of enslaved folk. Mm. So you get the smiling character of the enslaved person, but that can be problematic, as I hear you saying, right? Because in a sense, certainly there were moments of joy, but there's also moments of pain, and there's great suffering in slavery, and it's a challenge to try to thread that needle to show the humanity and to show through the the ability to find the joy, but then not to minimize, erase, or ignore the pain. That's it. You've hit the nail on the head because one of the challenges of enslavement is that this is almost impossible to do because so much of enslavement was so horrific that our ancestors didn't want to pass on the story. So I never understood Toni Morrison's famous quote from Beloved that this was not a story to pass on until it came up in a K-5 classroom context. I'm not saying we shouldn't tell the story of enslavement to young children. They need to be introduced to the true nature of the country early on. I wonder about how we introduce it through these children's books. Generally, and I cannot prove it, I have not done a national survey to find out if this is the case. I believe that many people first learned that slavery was a thing that existed in this country from encountering a book about Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth when they were very young. And as you note, Hassan, those were exceptionalities because they were not only transcendent and heroic, it's almost as if 
The vast majority of white characters in early children's books were all Abraham Lincoln's or Thomas Jefferson's or but no, we get a variety of white child life. We don't just get historical figures. We just don't get um, exceptional heroes. And yet there are very few picture books or relatively few picture books about people who just, and I'm not trying to be flip with this at all, happen to be enslaved, you know, because slavery was a legal condition. It didn't take one iota of our ancestors' humanity away from them. And so showing the joy even within this horrific condition is something that's so difficult because if you're showing them smiling, then people will object that you're caricaturizing black people for smiling in a picture book. I think it's the context of the emotion. There was a controversy around two picture books that appeared in late 2015 and early 2016 that showed black people who were enslaved smiling while servicing white folks. And not just any white folk. I mean, George right, Washington. Right. George wanted. Washington. <laughs> so which speaks to what you were saying about mm. these sort of idealized heroes in the American past. But go ahead. Absolutely. And I think that the context of the emotion or this affective domain needs to be considered. It would have been fine to show enslaved people smiling if they weren't serving and smiling. They could have been having a party in the quarters, which happened. Right. Or they could have been sewing a quilt to pass on one of the few items that enslaved women were sometimes allowed to pass down. You know, they could be smiling, anticipating a new child. There were so many other ways of thinking about the context of that smile in those books. And so I want teachers and parents and caregivers, and especially these children's publishers, to understand that context is everything. That's such a great point, because one of the challenges that teachers have, and parents too, when they pick up these books, they have to do some analysis themselves. And so if you see the enslaved person smiling, that in itself is not necessarily problematic. But like you said, what is the context? Is it serving and smiling? Or is it resisting in some social way away from white folk where you're finding the joy not in service to white folk, but joy in where they would have actually found it amongst their own? And we're not necessarily conditioned to do that. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What is the impact, either drawing on your research or even speculating Mm. uh, or theorizing, what is the impact that this then has on that third grader when they're introduced even to the good stuff, even to the exceptional, right? Let's talk about Harriet Tubman, but you haven't talked about anything else with regard to slavery. What impact does that then have on children for how they then will understand and engage with historical instruction with regard to slavery later on? I think that the challenge is even though our ancestors were just as human, just as noble, just as worthy, just as deserving as anyone else, slavery inherently tends to be a subjugated position. And children are acutely aware that an enslaved person is not a princess or a knight or a superhero or even just a kid down the street. 
children pick up clues that to be enslaved means that you are not free. Humans long for freedom. I mean, we all do across all cultures, across all space and time. And because of the reality that our country was built on enslavement, the black child then has this dilemma of double consciousness quite early on, far earlier than I think we give it credit for. They end up being like my nephew. When he was four years old, he has gorgeous dark chocolate skin. He was the only little black boy in his suburban class in Michigan. He came to me and said, Auntie, you know what? I'm dark skinned. And just that earliest awareness that skin color in the United States has not only historically, but in contemporary times meant something about whether you were free or not, or as free as other people. Children are picking up clues from their very earliest ages. So I would submit that as amazingly radiant as Mother Harriet was, as heroic as she is, some Black girls still long to see themselves as a Disney princess because a Disney princess doesn't have the same weight. And I think even as an enslaved real life character, we keep telling teachers, you need diverse books. We need more diverse books. We need more diverse books. But because of the genre disparity in children's literature, when a teacher, often a white teacher, grabs a book off the shelf, it usually is in one of those five categories I've named. And very often it's about slavery. Here is a special opportunity from Learning for Justice. By listening to this episode, educators can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You'll also find a link in the show notes. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, balance, all lowercase. Now back to my conversation with Ebony Thomas. So I wonder if, in speaking about context, right, you have to understand and recognize and teach the context for things that are happening within the book. But I wonder, in listening to you, if we are too dependent on picture books to teach history and that what we should be doing is teaching it in history classes and social studies classes and then using literature and children's literature to dig deeper as opposed to saying we're going to let that do all of the work for it. Absolutely. I agree 110%. If I had my way, <laughs> we would add back social studies and science curriculum for our younger kids. So of course, in primary grades, we're teaching them letter and number skills. We're teaching them how to read. We're teaching basic math. But once the kid gets to second or third grade, we absolutely need to push social studies instruction earlier. So having people who are subject 
experts thinking about how best do we introduce this topic to young children. So perhaps instead of a narrative, there are very early informational texts that we could give. And we do have some, a small but growing number of informational texts for very young readers where they can get some introduction to primary source document, even if it's just a picture of the young person, you know, or a picture of Frederick Douglass, like great orator Frederick Douglass. And we do have some of that, but typically kids do not get that until they're in the upper elementary grades, but more commonly in middle school. And this is not happening because of the testing regime in the country right now. I must call the name of a couple of amazing African-American women children's uh, writers who are doing incredible work and that I would like to see happen more for the younger grades. There's Tanya Bolden. So I've been asking for more books about the late 19th century in Black children's literature, because right now, well, we don't have very much at all. And so she's done an amazing book, among many, all her books are wonderful, about Sarah Rector, who was a 19th, late 19th century Gilded Age black millionaire, child millionaire. And she was black and native, I believe. And so she did all this research, historical research. But the book is probably most appropriate for kids in grades uh, six through eight, maybe fifth graders who are really great readers. I'm wondering if we could have picture books about folks like that, Um, because this is a notable figure, but we just don't introduce those kinds of kids to um, young audiences very early on. Usually it's the heroes. Um, but, you know, again, it's just like it, as if the whole of picture books for all children were just notable presidents and world leaders. It's very distancing for kids. And then you layer slavery on top of that. And once a kid grapples with what slavery is, it's very difficult to deal with. They don't want to think about it. And so will hear by middle or high school, I don't want to think about slavery. You're always shoving slavery down my throat because they've just been inundated with that when they ask for books that are about their people. I hear you saying that not only do we need books that portray the diversity of African-American experiences Mm -hmm. in slavery, for example, but books that display the diversity of the African-American experience over time, that by simply having your slavery and then civil rights books and then books centered around Barack Obama, you miss <laughs> the, 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 the full scope of the African-American experience. And you need that for children to see themselves in these characters. You right. just gave this wonderful presentation and you were talking about... Um, how our how our children are often stereotyped about their reading scores uh, and what the, the usual narrative is about their reading scores. Could you just say just briefly what you oh, were saying? Oh, absolutely. It was a wonderful point. <laughs> this is a quote from my book, The Dark Fantastic, which is not 
specifically about slavery. It's about thinking about race and the imagination and how the imagination forms through fantasy tropes. But I noted that maybe it's not that black kids can't read. Maybe it's we adults have not really considered what we are giving them to read. Because if most of the books that a child reads between preschool and kindergarten and grade 12 feature really difficult topics in history, hard history, then after a while, they're not going to want to read that. Like they feel, this is what we hear from kids. I mean, this is what I hear from my nieces and nephews. We already know that. I'll never forget when I was working on this project and my niece was about 11, my eldest niece, I have three of them, but the eldest one, I asked her what she knew about slavery and the way that she narrated it to me, she's very animated, type A personality, bubbly friendly, just like me. She went into a flat monotone and sounded like a Wikipedia article. It was so the way that she just depersonalized it was uncharacteristic for her. That was not her, you know, it's like, yeah, about a long time ago, you know, People went over in ships. And so it's almost like she was parroting whatever she had learned in school by sixth grade about enslavement. The seven years I spent teaching K-12 absolutely inform everything else that I have done, you know, I've done, you know, done during and since. So I think that getting my students to want to engage with the past was extremely and incredibly challenging. Unless the past was showing resistance. So one of my most um, popular lessons when I taught ninth grade English, so this is not little kids, but ninth grade English was when I um, taught the exchanges between Benjamin Banneker and Thomas Jefferson. So they corresponded and we read excerpts of those letters back and forth. And my students, particularly my boys, loved Banneker's responses to Thomas Jefferson. They, you know, I'd have them read it out loud, Reader's Theater, and they would just go, sir, sir, sir. They would they they turned Banneker into a hip hop verse because he was, you know, going back on Thomas Jefferson's prejudices about people of African descent. He was just really going in on the critique. So I just think that there are ways in which, um, you know, kids, my kids in particular, were really trying their best to stay in the present. I call it presentism on Twitter sometimes, but I think that the imperatives of embodied black existence in the here and now drew a lot of my Detroit kids into reality, keeping it real. So, yeah. I'm struck too by, as you were commenting on the conversations between exchanges between Jefferson and Banneker and that the students, especially the young black boys, keyed in on and connected to Banneker. I'm very much of the mind, and we've talked about it here in earlier episodes of the podcast, about the power of resistance as a tool for getting students, especially black students, to engage in this subject so they don't get turned off. Like part of the reason why they get turned off is because how they would understand in the simplest way, if somebody is treating you badly, you fight back. So why aren't these people fighting back? And if they're not fighting back, well, I, 
that that I don't want I don't want to have anything to be, yes. to deal with them. And so you can almost use it's not the um, it's somewhat ahistorical because you're usually saying, OK, you got to build context and then right. build a context for why people look. Slavery's bad. Kids understand that. Right. <laughs> Period. All right? Right, right. So then you can say, OK, this is how people fought back, because mm-hmm. in fighting back, they are able to recognize the thread, the kernel of their the humanity of the enslaved. Yes. And once you see the humanity of the enslaved, you do not you do not push back against connecting with them. And then it's like, oh, okay, now let me figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even thinking about children's books, Mm -hmm. like even I think even the best of them, it it creates that tension because, well, are you just doing the exceptionalism again? Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, but if you're doing it and not leaving it there, you're doing it and using it as a door, a portal through which to explore this greater experience and say, okay, this was one experience. So I understand that people fought back. Mm-hmm. Understand that everybody wanted to fight back, mm-hmm. but didn't necessarily have these opportunities or ways to do it in this way, but they fought back in these different ways. Yes. It's like mm-hmm. if we had books that, that or this look for those books, yes. yeah, that touch upon those themes, Absolutely. I think our students would be better served by them. Yeah, get excited. Yeah, the, a children's literature of black resistance is what we really... <laughs> Is what we need. Is what we need. I'm just thinking about pitching this to my um, friends at, at Scholastic and HarperCollins. Like, we need resistance. But it's what we really do. And our kids need them. All kids need them. Right. Because when they see, you know, us clapping back, it'll be other people. These books are teaching people how to treat us or teaching, you know, teaching everybody, you know, what black people are in the imagination. So I just really, I'm with you 100% there yeah we need books of resistance mm-hmm. way way more so you know we're still focused on closing the achievement gap raising uh test scores because that is the true measure of equity we have not asked many questions about the kinds of reading and writing that we are presenting our children with or the kinds of literacy benchmarks that we're asking them to achieve when some of this literature may be inherently traumatic. And again, getting into trauma, I'm a literacy scholar, I'm not a child psychologist, but what does it mean when so many of the books that children encounter in classrooms deal with things that many adults don't wanna talk about? that many adults feel are best left in the past, but we require little kids to think about it. You know, some would, some would then say that, well, then we shouldn't talk about slavery in the classroom, and certainly not at these early ages, but I actually hear you saying something different, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I hear you saying, no, we need to talk about it, we need to teach it, but we have to do it with balance that we don't want to, we just recreate or create new traumas, if that's the only thing that we focus on. In our curriculums, we also have to look for children's books and children's literature and picture books that show um, the African-American experience and African-American people in their full breadth and depth. Does that, does that, is that an accurate assessment? Absolutely accurate. Absolutely accurate. I keep thinking about Chinua Achebe's um, 
I hope I pronounced that correctly, but Chinua Achebe's uh, quote about um, wanting a balance of stories for Africa. So, you know, the great, late great Nigerian writer. But that's true across the pond, too. That's true in the diaspora, too. So we need stories about that hard history or the, um, you know, I'm thinking about Lift Every Voice and Sing because of Imani Perry's amazing May We Forever Stand. So that's a great book about the national, the Negro National Anthem or the Black National Anthem written by uh, James Weldon Johnson and his brother. But here's the thing. I think about that line, sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. And so it's important for us to know about the darkness of that past. And again, dark as metaphor is also something that I think about in my scholarly work and how we use dark in the West. But, you know, point taken. So we need, but the other half of the line is what the Johnson brothers, a generation removed from slavery, taught us back in the day. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. And so that is so important. We need both to know about the past. Like our people have come from, as my grandmother used to say, a mighty long way. But our people also have hope for the future. Um, Quoting N.K. Jemison, how long till Black Future Month? Although I do think we still, you know, Black History Month is important, but that's why it's so important to make sure even from the very earliest ages from board books, we give children images of the Black past, but also Black presence and futures so that we can begin to break out of these these boxes and these cages that that trap black people not only in narratives but you know just this, as whatever happens in stories is sort of a dress rehearsal for what happens in real life so you know i just want us to really think about these images and the kinds of subconscious messaging that not only our kids are getting because i haven't gotten to all kids because i'm you know of course first to you know our children thinking about what they're going through but these books travel where we do not and so when um there are children who do not encounter many black uh people or families or kids like them but they're reading these books about slavery and civil rights and the ghetto. And of course, those books are um, augmented with multimedia and digital media and social media. And they're getting an idea of who black people are. And then they have to deal with people of African descent in the real world. And so far, that has not been working very well for all of us. So So. in thinking about these books in particular, right, and the books that deal with with slavery and knowing that, you know, taken in isolation, they can be problematic. Um, If we don't, the depictions of the African-American experience, dependent upon the context, can be problematic, but they can be useful. The books themselves can be useful for helping to get our children, our students, our young people to understand what slavery was and its centrality not only to the African-American experience in this earlier period, but to the centrality of the American experience. So in our school libraries, these books are on the shelves. There's picture books that deal with slavery. And there are new books being published all the time. What are two or three elements that teachers should be looking at 
when they pull these books from the shelves and are considering using them in the classroom to teach about slavery? Okay. Um, here are a few criteria. The first is the teacher or the caregiver who's pulling that book from the shelf needs to figure out who's telling the story. The story might be about the helpful white character where enslaved characters are either not telling their own stories or they're seen as beside the point. And while I'm not saying all those stories are terrible. I would question whether or not that's actually a story about enslavement at all. It's about something else. Um, it's about the construction of U.S. whiteness or white society or something like that. So who is telling the story is one of the um, criteria, you know, so look at the narration or the focalizer. How is the story being narrated? Where's the focus of it? Another criteria that I would want teachers or caregivers to um, to um, use while evaluating this kind of literature is for them to not look at the words for a moment and just flip through the illustrations in that book and to see what the enslaved characters look like or other characters of African descent? Where are they on the page? Are they centered? You know, when you open up a picture book, it's a double page spread. Um, is that character centered? Are they off to the side? Do you see their faces? Um, are the drawings lifelike or otherwise stylized? Now, this is very subjective here. But you know, there's a thin line between artistic license and caricature. And because of our long U.S. history of caricature and um, unfortunately blackface minstrelsy, um, look very carefully at the illustrator's technique. How are they drawing those um, the people? features? Yeah, the features of the of the people in the books. Um, and then I think finally, I would. This is a more subjective category. I would think about the prosody of the text and the story, you know, th you know, the prosody of the emotion. So like thinking about how emotions are being construed throughout the text and just being very sensitive to who's in your classroom or who's in your, who is around that circle. So these books, we know from anecdotal evidence and hopefully from research soon, um, young adults or adults coming of age have told us heartbreaking stories of being the only black child in a classroom when slavery comes up or, you know, for older children, they always talk about to kill a mockingbird and having to deal with that. Um, I myself had um, a classroom experience where my only black girl in a class in Ann Arbor, I read crooks, you know, like she was offended by a young white boy reading um, African American uh, vernacular English. So being very sensitive to any emotional issues that arise in that book and thinking about the ways in which you handle that issue depending upon who the children are in your class and only you can do that you know your children best so I think I'll close with just know the children in front of you know what they're ready for know what they're prepared for and proceed with courage and good faith because we need you doing this good work and and know where they're coming from. Absolutely. Know their communities, know their backgrounds, know their, backgrounds, know their families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. That's yeah. great. So 
you've looked at all of these books, you and your research team. What are some of the some of the books that do a good job? Certainly want to leave our listeners with some useful information to tell. But then even some of the common characteristics that you see across some of the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in other words, things that our teachers, the listeners here, should be looking for when they're thinking about uh, using a picture book in the classroom. Uh, I always go back to uh, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's work. So Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop is Professor Emerita at The Ohio State University, and she is one of the founders or perhaps one of the first preeminent multicultural children's literature scholars. She's the one who came up with the metaphor of the windows, mirrors, and doors of children's literature. In her book, Free Within Ourselves, she has a five-point uh, rubric for evaluating authentic, culturally authentic African-American literature. And um, one of her criteria that I love is thinking about the role of family and community, because without our families and communities, we would not have survived um, any of it. We wouldn't have su- survived the Middle Passage. We would not have survived the plantations. We would not have survived Jim Crow. And we certainly wouldn't have de- um, survived what we're going through now with mass incarceration, police brutality. And so one of the things that I look for in picture books about enslavement is how they are portraying Black family and community survival, even within um, even during tough times. And the best children's books do that. So for instance, one book that I love and I talk about in my presentations is Glinda Armand's Love 12 Miles Long about um, Frederick Douglass and his mother. So we all know that Douglass's mother was sold away from her son very early on. And she walked 12 miles to see him, I think, was it every other week? It's been a long time since I've read the narrative. So please forgive me for that. We read it a lot when I was in high school and in undergrad at FAMU. Um I, I like that because although, um, you know, some of it is, you know, we're not getting the full horror of a mother being sold away from her baby. It still shows the the profound love that this woman had for her baby where she's walking, you know, after she's tired and she has worked you know, she's an enslaved laborer and she's walking to see her son and how excited he gets for the visits of his mother. I think that's humanizing. Um, I like Ashley Bryan's Freedom Over Me. Um, Ashley Bryan is one of our, I had the pleasure of meeting him. Um, Penn just acquired his uh, collection of papers, but Ash, Mr. Bryan is 95 years old. So he is a living legend, living griot. He has lit griot. He is a living griot. He is, I mean, and his uh, freedom over me presents different stories of enslaved people. And so I, I like anytime. So along with family and community, anytime we can think about the strength of the collective, which you're not allowed to talk about the people or the collective in the United States, because then you're a stinking communist or a socialist. But Thinking about collective action, and um, I think that's important. And so maybe picture books where we get more than one person, we break up the hero um, narrative, or we look at the people who 
um, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass were in conversation with. Here's a picture book I'd like to see because I'll say this and then stop because I could just go on and on. Here's a picture book I'd like to see that we won't get. I'd like to see more picture books about um, interracial coalitions and how interracial coalitions have both succeeded and failed throughout U.S. history because it's always been something that the powers that be don't want to see like you know because of you know the way in which the United States is constructed. So Frederick Douglass and John Brown had a very important conversation in Detroit, Michigan back in the 1850s and I see you know Dr. Jeffrey sees a historian he's nodding that conversation you don't learn about until you are in college or university and so you know we don't have many picture books about John Brown what I learned about John Brown when I was a kid was that he was crazy just some vague you know and this important conversation that Douglas and Brown had was in my hometown of Detroit there was a historical marker there And um, I would like to see there is a way you can tell that story, maybe not to four year olds, but to seven or eight year olds where you can talk about maybe not the whole you don't carry the story out to the bloody end of Harper's Ferry. But, you know, there were people thinking about abolition. Oh, one more. I know I get (laughs) another story I'd like to think about is the fact that enslavement, you know, we give ourselves credit the way that we um, that the enslavement exists in the early literacy curriculum is that the United States was misguided, you know, around and like, like there were some people who were, you know, they held people. It's a bad thing. But there was a civil war. There were these black heroes that, you know, either self-liberated or they freed others. Then there was a civil war. Yay, Abraham Lincoln. Yay, heroes. And American, the march toward freedom and progress and equality kept on, kept keeping on. What I love to see is more <laughs> books about how the British Empire pretty much manumitted their slaves. Now, I'm not giving the British Empire any credit for anything. Worst empire in human history, just period. I mean, I'm not a historian, but as a a, a history fangirl, they just, I mean, they, they make Rome look like they were playing patty cake with people. Britain was horrible, but there was manumission. So it's not that Great Britain was any better than the United States, but just thinking about the road to manumission over in the UK and in the empire, and then thinking about why the United States chose specifically not to do it that way. There are so many little stories you could tell. Um, okay, I promise I'll be quiet after this no, one. Bell. Okay, so... I, I tell you, I'm a history fangirl. I'm not a historian, but I love historical fiction, especially for young people. There was a lovely me. Um, there was a lovely film by British uh, Afro British uh, filmmaker um, Ama Asante. So there was a lovely film by Afro British filmmaker Ama Asante called Bell by a historical figure who was instrumental at the beginning of the conversations around um, ending slavery in the British Empire. So her name was Dido Elizabeth Bell, and she was a biracial daughter of um, a, a peer and a black slave. And her grandfather was Lord Mansfield, who presided over the Zong case. I have been asking children's literature to give me a book. I asked for a YA or middle grades book, be a picture book. I said, this was this is a woman who is so beautiful. She's depicted in a very famous painting and you can't have a picture. We still don't have a picture book about Belle. Why not? 
There are so many stories that we could have and don't. And I think that's what really strikes me. We get the same story over and over again. Black authors keep telling me, I am so tired of writing about the same 12 black historical figures when you get them off the record, because of course they're trying to eat. But the black authors and illustrators are telling me, I hope they don't stop talking to me now, but you know, they're telling me I am so tired. Like I keep, you know, I, they, they want to do these innovative projects. And then the publishers, they look at what teachers around the country, particularly in places where there aren't a lot of black people and they have a black history month program or curriculum or unit to put together. That's what sales. So, Oh, we'll take another book about King and God bless King. I feel like I always have to love my ancestors, love on my ancestors while I'm doing this critique of the contemporary industry. I'm thankful to those 12 figures because they, you know, they were transcendent. However, there was thousands of other stories we're missing. So there are some good books out there. There are a couple of fantastic books, but a lot of the books that are out there are problematic. But even problematic books can be useful in the classroom. Yeah. But you really got to know what you're doing. What are some of the tropes that can be critically analyzed by teachers and used effectively in the classroom with young people? I think that one way that teachers can help their students develop a critical lens around children's literature is to actually do the historical reading themselves. I'm not saying that you have to go become an expert on enslavement in order to teach slavery in children's literature. However, um, I do think that coupling your unit around a children's picture book with some of the actual history, even if you know it and your knowledge informs what it is that you do, um, is very helpful. For instance, during the Smiling Slaves controversy, okay, let me explain what that was. Um, In um, late 2015 and early 2016, there were two picture books that were published um, that featured smiling enslaved people who were serving in a certain, they were in a service capacity. The first was called A Fine Dessert. It was written by Emily Jenkins and illustrated by Sophie Blackall. And um, Sophie Blackall has gone on to become a two-time Caldecott winner. So I have to note that here on this podcast and every time I get a mic, because people have said that sometimes protests on social media hurt someone's career. In Sophie's case, it may have helped her career because people felt like there was pile on. So anyway, that that team was all white. So you had a white author, white illustrator, white editor, I believe the art director. So everybody involved and, you know, I don't know about every you know, everybody around the table, the stakeholders there were white. About three months after that protest, a new, another book came out that Dr. Jeffries mentioned, Hassan, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, a birthday cake for George Washington. And um, it, unfortunately, everyone responsible for that book, and I won't call their names, but everyone responsible for that book was a woman of color and a couple of were black women. And here's the thing. Some people were appalled and wanted to, you know, cancel them. I didn't feel that way because I felt as if 
we grow up here just like everybody else and we're affected by the same images as everyone else. But then this is what you do with a book like A Birthday Cake for George Washington, where you have people happily baking an anachronistic cake for because the kind of cake they even made, that's just a 21st century, 20th century cake. And they would have made something different in the late 18th century. But anyway, neither here nor there. What you do is you pair that with your a read of a wonderful book. You should read this. Erica Armstrong Dunbar's Never Caught. So then you read about how George and Marcia, oh goodness, you read about how George and Martha Washington actually treated their enslaved people. And then you are able to hack that lesson or hack the book for the kids. So you can have them read the picture book, use it with, you know, older elementary kids, so upper elementary kids. Then you can have them look at the Mount Vernon website. There are resources on teaching tolerance, teaching for change and other historical websites. And you can have them see what is accurate about the book, what's good about the book, what do we like about it. But then how might you change the story given this new information? So there are ways that we can help our students develop a critical lens around the story. And then at the end of that, you all can have fun together. If they're younger, you guide them through it. If they're older, certainly middle school kids, you can just, if you have um, any kind of web access, they can just go to town. You can have them write letters, even if they don't send the letters to the publisher, although maybe that would be a good idea. They could write, you know, how they might revise the book. And then that helps them take ownership of story. Like how might I have written this story differently now that I know what actually happened that you know, Hercules wasn't exactly pleased to make the Washington's food while his family were in chains or while he was in chains. So that's that's how I would um, that's how I think we can use even bad books. And thinking about the quote unquote bad books, they focus on perhaps uh, more so than some of the other subjects, the question of the founders. And there's, there's something going on there. Right. Because this is a birthday cake for George Washington. And if you if you to ask that same team and pitch the idea of, you know, do a birthday, a book about a birthday cake for George Washington. I'm like, oh, OK, clearly they thought that was OK. But if you have said do a birthday cake for an enslaver, <laughs> they might have right. been like, oh, no, no. what y'all talking about? Right. But the association, or there was no association in that sense, mm-hmm. right, that that George Washington is as much a person holding people in bondage as he is the first president of the United States. Oh, yeah. There's and a disassociation, but that's something that we see. You know, there is something about the founding. I kept trying to find picture books that accurately depicted the Washington's cruel treatment of the Mount Vernon enslaved folk or the people in Philadelphia, which Philadelphia, black Philadelphians told me about when I moved there seven years ago. They said, you need to go down to Independence Mall. You can see Washington chained up his enslaved folk in the basement. And I was like, what? Because you don't hear that. And so my student and I, we have an article out in social education that came out last year. We spent over a year trying to find, okay, we even said, let's just look at the 21st century picture books from the 21st century. Do they depict Washington's slaveholding? And the answer is no. 
And when they do, and I know you know this, Hassan, they want to give them a pass. They say it was Martha. Those were Martha's slaves. She was cruel. So there's something about we have we have whitewashed Washington and certainly many of the other founders we don't talk about or think about. And so there's something there um, that bears more examining than I've had the capacity to do. I think what I think part of what we're doing in in portraying and depicting particularly the founders because the founders will 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 serve as the stand-in because if if you can absolve the founders of their enslavement of other people then what can you say about others who were enslaving i mean so it really bleeds it bleeds over but what we i think i think what we're actually doing and this can become the danger of treating these enslavers treating the founders in this particular way is what we're actually doing is rationalizing evil. And then yeah. what become, what are the implications of that for how we want to then study slavery and the American experience and how we understand racism and the harmful effects of white supremacy and continuing discrimination a century and a half after slavery ends if we've rationalized away and muted the harm that slavery does, beginning with the very moment that we introduce the issue through children's literature, most likely in the second, third, and fourth grades. I think we kind of got at this, but I want to ask it mm -hmm. just very pointedly, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so here's the question. Why is it important to teach slavery to children? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it is important to teach slavery to children because if you do not understand slavery in the United States, you will not understand not only racism in the contemporary United States, you will not understand the contemporary United States. It's stitched into the very fabric of even our, our current political culture. You won't understand the Electoral College. You won't understand... Uh, everything being talked about at Washington, D.C., you won't understand why we don't have universal health care. Um, there's just so much about the U.S. that is impossible to understand without understanding um, that we were once a slave society. And as I listen to your answer, I, I'm struck by the realization that we will teach American history. So we can pull out it, you know, if we don't teach slavery to children, it's not like we're not going to teach some version of American history then. So then when we do eventually circle back around and want to introduce slavery, it makes no sense. That's it. And its impact and the, the, the lasting legacy of it doesn't make any sense. That's it. And doesn't gel and jive with the version of history that we have been teaching from the very beginning of their education. That's it. And we are, we, you and I know as, you know, as professors, as educators, and as scholars, what human beings do with contradictory information. There, something's going, something's got to give or give way. Something has got to give way. Either the United States is the land of the free and the home of the brave, or else we are a recovering slave society. 
And the two, we know that the two can exist in tension and have existed in tension, but that's really hard for people. And we see an increasing number of people who are rejecting the latter completely. Like, you know, no, we don't want to think about this. Slavery was a long time ago and the Native Americans were conquered. That's another kettlebell fish. That's another episode. But that those are the twin founding sins of the country that we have to wrestle with. So, yeah. Yeah. Ebony Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time. We've had it's been a long day. It's been a wonderful and powerful conference. You did great work this morning, this afternoon. And thank you so much for taking the time out this evening to carry on the conversation and share your insights and your wisdom and your knowledge and your suggestions about how to use children's picture books uh, effectively uh, to uh, accurately teach the history of American slavery. So thank you very much. Anytime. It's been a pleasure. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas is an associate professor of education at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. She is a former Detroit public school teacher and past chair of the National Council of Teachers of English Standing Committee on Research. Her most recent book is The Dark Fantastic, Race and the Imagination, From Harry Potter to the Hunger Games, from NYU Press. Dr. Thomas is also an advisory board member and consultant for the Teaching Hard History Project. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare their students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Teaching Tolerance offers free resources to educators who work with children from kindergarten through high school. You can also find these online at tolerance.org. Most students leave high school without an adequate understanding of the role slavery played in the development of what is currently the United States or how its legacies still influence us today. Now in our second season, this podcast is part of an effort to provide comprehensive tools for learning and teaching this critical topic. Teaching Tolerance provides free teaching materials that include over 100 texts, sample inquiries, and a detailed K-12 framework for teaching the history of American slavery. You can find these online at tolerance.org backslash hard history. Thanks to Dr. Thomas for sharing her insights with us. Thanks to LeGarry King for making my interview with Dr. Thomas possible. And a special thanks to Asha Jeffries for playing herself in the introduction. This podcast was produced by Shay Shackelford with production assistance from Russell Gregg. Kate Schuster is our executive producer. Our theme song is Different Heroes by A Tribe Called Red, featuring Northern Voice, who graciously let us use it for this series. Additional music is by Chris Zabriskie. If you like what we're doing, please let your friends and colleagues know. Tell us what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate the feedback. I'm Dr. Asan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University and your host for Teaching Hard History, American Slavery. <laughs> <laughs>